This is the Austin Life Church podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. We're going to be in Mark um, 14 today. You know, as we sang that song, I just was thinking about that, that line. Um, I'm going to steal these lyrics because I'm that last song because I can't remember uh, off the top of my head without singing it. If you're not here, I don't want to be, I won't be moved unless you move. <clears throat> and I was thinking about that, and, and I think part of my challenge and probably part of our challenge and our culture's challenge is that we're so, we're so quick to move. We don't know how to be still. We don't know how to sit and wait and persevere. Um, and so like that line of I won't be moved unless you move uh, th- there's just a lot of things that move me TV a game work food right there's a lot of things that that move me so easily um, and, and I just I don't have the discipline and, and I don't have the hunger and the desperation that says God I'm not going anywhere unless you're going um, we're so I'm so easily distracted and I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we face in our culture is we're so easily moved on from our thoughts on God, our time with God, our disciplines with God, um, and, and thus we, we're, we're missing him. We're missing a deeper connection. Um, and at the same time, I don't, I don't know how to change that. Like, I, I can't manufacture that in you. I can't manufacture that in me. You know, how, how do we create that desperation went to this conference and the, the, the leader was like, man, desperation is measurable. You can see desperation. Like it's, it's measurable. And I just wonder how much could someone see a desperation in me for God? How much could someone see a desperation in you for God? Remember that, that woman in Mark 5? She'd been bleeding for over 12 years and she had spent all of her money on the doctors and nobody figured it out. She was desperate for healing and that desperation was measurable. You could see her reach out to touch Jesus. And I just wonder how desperate we are for him. Are we willing to wait and not be moved unless he moves? Or have we done our 10 minutes and we're taken off regardless? I, 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 don't, I don't know, I'm not, I, I don't have an answer. I just sensed that in myself. Found it. I just sensed that in myself that I'm so quickly and easily moved. And I wanted desperation for myself and I want it for, for y'all. And so maybe, maybe we just start by praying an honest prayer of God, I'm not very desperate for you. Will you create a longing, a desperation in me? We create a hunger. Maybe that's where we start. And we just pray that prayer over and over and over and over and over again. But I think if we're not desperate for him, we'll quickly move on to something else. Part of why I think that this actually segues fairly, fairly well is we're all worshipers. We're all worshiping something. We're all desperate for something. There's something in each of us that is ultimate, at every given moment, right now, in this exact moment, 
in every one of our lives, there's something that is ultimate in our lives. Something or someone that, that we value more than everything else and that our lives then follow after, submit to, give allegiance to, give affection towards. Right? It could be God. We could be here worshiping God because ultimately we value him most. It could be our image and we, we value the image that we portray by coming to church. But it could be a relationship and we value the people the most. And so we're here because really the people are here that we value the most. But at every given moment, and it can change, at one moment I can value God the most and the next I can value myself the most. But it could fluctuate throughout the day. But at every given moment of every given day, we are all worshipers of something. I read this week um, a commencement speech given back in, I think it was 2005, uh, by uh, DFW, David Foster Wallace. He's an author. Um, and and he's not, he was not religious. He's not, he would not call himself a Christian. He would not call himself spiritual. But he understands. He says, everyone worships. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Because worship is not purely a spiritual term. Right? It's just, it just means we all value something as ultimate and our lives are going towards it. The different, what we get as humans is we get to choose what we worship. We're all worshiping and we're all choosing what we worship. In this moment right now, you and I are choosing what we value most. We're choosing what we worship. He lists several in that, um, in that speech. He says money, things, like possessions. It's very common for us to worship money and things. Like what drives our day is acquiring more. We wake up and we go to work and we grind and we grind and we grind and we work long days and we work, you know, overtime because what, what values, what drives us is acquiring more money for our nest egg or our things we want to buy, and that's ultimately what we're devoted to, is money and things, and our life then follows that. A common object of worship in our culture is beauty and appearance, physical health, right? So the gym becomes our temple. These clothes are what we strive for. This appearance is what we go after, what people think of our appearance, how we feel about our appearance, right? That's ultimately what is dictating how we live our lives. Another one he mentions is another person. A spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, kids, a boss, Right? It's, it's another person that ultimately is what is most important to us, that without said person, our life becomes unhinged. Right? That we're acting and moving and being in a certain way for the approval of said person. Right? That's ultimately what, what matters. And he makes the point. He, he says, he says you, another thing is you can worship a God, a being, a deity, and he, a non-religious person, makes the point that what's different between, different between worshiping a God and everything else is that everything else at some point will eat you alive. At some point will fall apart and thus you will fall with it 
or will turn on you and thus will take you down with it. It's like, man, it's pretty insightful for someone who isn't a religious person. So right now, you and I, we're all worshiping. In this moment, you are worshiping. I am worshiping. I'm preaching for the value of myself, my family, God. There's something driving me. And the same for us. The question is, what are you choosing to worship? What are you choosing to give your affection, your thoughts, your attention, your life to? I propose to you, and I'm guessing most of you would agree with this, that our lives are best spent worshiping God. Putting the God of the Bible as ultimate, as the highest value, the greatest worth, and and then devoting our lives towards his exaltation and his honor and his praise. Speaking in such a way, I speak this way because I value and worship God. I I live this way because I value and worship God. My proposal to you is that you and I were created for that purpose. And therefore, the best life that we can live is a life of worshiping God. Of, Of giving our full affection to him. My guess is most of you would agree with that. So what does a worship of God look like? What, what makes worship of God right worship, good worship, beautiful worship? We see that in Mark 14 today. So I'm going to start by reading in verse 1, but we're really going to focus on verses 3 through 9. This is what is called a, a, a Mark sandwich. He uses this technique a lot where he has topic A, topic B, topic A, and his point is to drive us to topic B, right, the one in the middle, the meat of the sandwich, not the bread, the meat. And so in this case, topic A is verses one through two, which is that it was two days before Passover, Passover, Passover. I was reading feast and saying, I did it again. It's two days before Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And then we get the story that we're going to read of Mary anointing Jesus from head to toe with the ointment out of this flask of oil, out of this alabaster flask. And then we see in verse 10... Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. So the the bread of the sandwich is the betrayal of Jesus. These religious leaders and, and even his close friend betraying him, seeking to destroy and kill him. And the meat in between that is this beautiful picture of worship. So Mark is wanting to say, man, there are people out there to kill him, but even in this moment, there's beautiful worship. And that's what he's wanting to draw our focus to and our attention to. Next week, we'll talk more about the betrayal of Jesus as we're moving into the Holy Week, as we're moving into the betrayal and execution of Jesus. But today, 
Mark wants us to note this beautiful worship of Mary. And so let's read verses 3 through 9 together. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So we've got Jesus outside of Jerusalem in Bethany. And it says that he is reclining at table in the house of Simon the leper. Right? So many stories of Jesus has been spent around a table with food and drink, sharing life with others. It's one of the reasons that we've always said there's always an open seat at the table, right? Because good things happen around a table where you share life with people, where you eat together and you drink together. It's a, it's a gesture of genuine community. And so in this case, for Jesus to be around a table with these people, he's just hanging with his friends, He's just sharing a meal with his friends before he goes back to Jerusalem for his betrayal and death. And we've got, you know, the disciples are there and Simon the leper and, and we're assuming others. John tells us that Martha was there serving, the, serving their food and their drinks. And Mary is there, um, obviously, because she comes in with an alabaster flask of, of ointment, of pure nard. John says it was 12 ounces, a pound, right? Most, most cologne bottles is like three and a half ounces. You can pack that in your carry-on and you're good to go, I think, right? Is it three and a half? It's three and a half, right? Okay. 12 ounces, just this, this glass flask of, of ointment, of, of pure nard. And what this was, it was an aromatic oil, right? It was a perfume. It was an essential oil. I mean, you can, you can put it in your house, you know, and you can diffuse it if they had those things, whatever, and it makes the house smell good. Or you can dab it on your, your neck or your wrist or wherever you dab perfume or colognes, right? And, and, it, and it smells good. So she's got this alabaster flask, and what does she do? It says that she, she breaks it. She doesn't just open it, but she breaks the top of this glass jar, and she pours the whole 12 ounces out on Jesus. She anoints his body from head to toe. Mark says that she poured it on his head. The Gospel of John says that she washed his feet with the oil, that she then rubbed her hair to, to wipe dry his feet. So Mary has poured out this whole flask of ointment from head to toe on Jesus, and she's anointing his body for what she knows is his upcoming death. And this was an intimate act. It was, an, it was an, a close act. How many times have you put perfume or cologne on someone? 
It's not, it's not very often where you put it on someone else. And typically, if you do, right, you're, spray, you're spritzing them. How many times have you rubbed a perfume on someone? Much less, zero, thank you, me too, none, zero. Much less from head to toe. Right, this is an, this is an intimate, vulnerable act. And it was very costly. It was very costly. Judas would say that the, 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 the flask could have been sold for over 300 denarii. Now, what does that equate to, right? The average worker got paid one denarii a day. The average worker worked six days a week. So that's 312 denarii for a full years of work. And this was valued at over 300 denarii. This was the equivalent of one year's salary. This was no like flea market perfume. This is imported from India. Like fancy stuff. The real deal. Man, you're shedding out a year's worth of salary to buy this flask of ointment. In Austin, the average individual salary for one year is $41,000. So let's just say it was a $41,000 bottle of perfume. And what would you do with it? 41,000 laying around. I mean, what would you do? Throw that toward a down payment? You need to triple it, but you know, it's whatever. You can throw it towards a down payment of a house. Man, you can go on a vacation or three. I'm buying a truck and maybe Michaela a car. Maybe. We'll see. Depends on how fancy I'm doing the truck. She may get the pilot. Keep threatening her with that. And she's like, I'm not driving this thing. Man, you can throw that in your 401k. Just boost up that savings. Think about the shopping spree. Then get some Louis Vuitton. You get those red bottoms. What shoes are those? Who? Those are Louis Vuittons with the red bottom? What? Louboutins with the red shoes? Whatever. It's not worth it. But what are you going to do with a year's worth of salary? She takes a $41,000 bottle of perfume that could have probably lasted for a long time. And in one sitting, in a matter of minutes, she pours the whole thing on Jesus. The whole year's salary worth of ointment she puts on Jesus. And I said, I mean, you can, you can see devotion and desperation and worship. It's tangible. We're all choosing to worship something and we can see it. You can see it in your own life. I can see it in the life of others. What are we worshiping? What is Mary worshiping? How would you respond in that setting? Imagine sitting at this table with Jesus, right? Put yourself there. You're sitting at a table with Jesus. You're eating some bread. Man, you got the, the wine is going around. And you're, just, you're enjoying time with Jesus. And Mary walks in. And in this setting, 
It was culturally not acceptable for a woman to join a dinner party. They could serve a dinner party, but they couldn't join a dinner party. And so Mary comes in into the middle of this group of men, breaks open a 300 denarii, $41,000 bottle of perfume and pours it all on Jesus and begins to anoint him from head to toe. How are you going to respond to that? I, for one, am first thinking, this is awkward. There's a time and a place. This is neither the time nor the place. That's probably my first thought. And then I'm looking at it and thinking, you just flushed $41,000 down the toilet. I'm probably condemning the action as foolish, irrational, extravagant, in a, in a bad way, that's probably what I'm thinking. I'm probably judging her motives. What are you trying to buy here, Mary? What, what, are, you, what are you, you hoping people notice this? That, honestly, that's probably what I'm doing. I'm thinking, this is awkward. Figure out a better place to do this, Mary. And what the heck are you doing? That was wasteful. That's silly. Come on, don't you know that, man, we got a, a building campaign over here we could have thrown that money to? We could have fed the hungry or the poor, which is exactly what happens. Right? Jesus says that there were some there in verse 4 who said to themselves indignantly, they were angry, they were frustrated by the silly, frivolous actions of Mary towards Jesus. Why was the ointment wasted like that? I hate reading this because you can tell that, like, you know, these are not the good guys, and yet that's exactly what I would be thinking. Right? These are not, these are not the ones that Jesus praises, and yet that's where I would be. Well, why did you waste $41,000 in one sitting? You could have, like, dabbed them with some oil and still gone and sold it for some good money. Right? I would have sat down and been like, hey, let's talk about this. Let's think what we want to do with this. We could put a little bit here. You could put some there. You could put some in savings. You got to be wise, you know. You could take care of this need over here. Like, that's where I'm going. That's where they're going. This is stupid. It's wasteful. They like said the ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. That's okay. That's fair. It's a command of God to care for the poor. That's not fair. And they scolded her for it. Jesus responds differently. Leave her alone. Why are, you, why are you bothering her? Why are you troubling her? His perception of what she did, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Where you've got people over here looking at it and scolding her because it's wasteful and silly and frivolous Jesus is going, yes, that was beautiful. Why? What makes this act of worship beautiful? Is it the price tag? Is the only way to worship Jesus beautifully is if we're shelling out just chunks of change? No. No. Was it Mark 12? 
right? Yeah, the end of 12, the widow's offering. Stephen preached on her a couple weeks ago. And she was scraping by. She barely threw anything into the, towards Jesus. And they're like, yes, that's beautiful. So it's not, it's not the price tag. Is, is it the ointment? Like, do we need to now start bringing flasks of, of oil into worship so that we can, I don't know, because Jesus' physical body isn't here for us to anoint. Right? So, so what makes this beautiful? Like, is it, you know, have you ever wondered, like, how do you, what's the proper way to worship? How do we worship? Is it like this church down, down there? Like, should I have my hands up? Should I sit? Should I stand? Right? Should I dance? Should I have flags or tambourines? You know, have you ever wondered, okay, what, how do we know that we're doing this right? What makes our worship right and beautiful and good? Jesus said her that what she did was beautiful. Why? What made it beautiful? Verse 7, he just, I, I love it. He like, he's like, boy, stop this. You can care for the poor anytime you want. This isn't about the poor. Shut up. I, I just kind of love the little jab he gives there. He knows their hearts. They, they're not worried about the poor. And then he goes on and says, she has done what she could. So when you, you read this story, Here's my takeaway. What makes her worship beautiful is that she did what she could, when she could, with all she could. She did what she could. She had a flask of ointment. Other people didn't. Great. She did what she could. It wasn't a matter of the fact that it was a $41,000 flask of ointment because the, the widow was barely throwing in any money and she did what she could. She, she simply did what, what she could bring to the table. Martha was serving food. She, Martha did what she could. Mary did what she could. She did what she could. What makes worship beautiful is when we simply do what we can. Most of us don't have a year's worth of salary that we can give to God. And you know what? He's not asking for a year's worth of salary. Most of us don't have some fancy ointment that we can devote to God. And that's okay because Jesus doesn't command everybody to go grab their ointment and come back and anoint him. None of us have the physical body of Jesus to pour oil on. The point Jesus is getting at, what makes it beautiful, is that she simply took what she could and gave it to Jesus. What can you give to God? What can I give to God? Do you have a job? Give it to God. Work unto the Lord. Do you have a spouse? Love your spouse as Christ's loves you. Do you have neighbors? Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Do you have money? Give it to the church and the poor. Give it to your brother or sister in need. Are you able to craft and sew clothes? Give it to the needy. What can you and I give 
That's what God is looking at. Each one of us are unique and different and bring different things to the table. Yours is no more right than mine. What makes it beautiful is simply that we're willing to give it to him. Are you able to gather with a church body? Gather with the church body. Some people aren't able to do that. Are you able to sing? Then sing. Some people aren't able to do that. Are you able to physically serve and repair someone's home? Physically serve. Some people aren't able to do that. What's important is not what you can do or what I can do, but simply that we we do what we can. We give what we can. And each one of us have unique gifts, unique seasons, unique stories, unique circumstances. We're going to give our lives and our resources to something. That's how we see our worship. Are we willing to give it to God? She also did what she can when she could. And I said, this was culturally not the time or the place for her. But she was obviously not concerned about what people thought. If she was concerned about the right time and the right place, she would have never walked in there. If she was concerned about what people were going to think about her act of worship, she would have never broken a bottle of oil and anointed Jesus with it. But her Savior was there. She had what she could, and she gave it when she could. I think so often we're so calculated in our, in our worship. We're so calculated with our schedule. She just gave what she could when she could. That's what made it beautiful. She didn't think, oh, is this the right time or the place? She just opportunity was there. So she gave and she worshiped. And she gave with all she could. She gave what she could, when she could, with all she could. She didn't hold back. She didn't calculate out, like, let me pour a little bit over here so I can keep the rest of it. Right? She just poured everything she had on Jesus. I think another thing that gets, holds us back from worship is we get in our heads about what other people are going to think. Am I going to sound on pitch when I sing? Is this going to be the wrong time or the wrong place? Is this going to be awkward? And really at that point, we're no longer thinking about Jesus. We're thinking about ourselves and how we're going to be perceived to others. She just, this was an awkward, irrational, extravagant act and if she would have thought about what other people were thinking or what the, you know, man, what's the best way to do this? Like she would have held back. But she simply gave what she could, when she could, with all she could. Now again, I don't think God's saying, hey, go empty your bank account and get, like that's not, he doesn't command us to do that. It's a heart issue. Are we holding back in our hearts? Or are we holding back in our worship of him? Beautiful worship for you and for me 
is not me worshiping like someone else. It's not me doing what someone else does. It's not me matching someone else's tithe or whatever. Beautiful worship is my heart giving to God what I can, when I can, with all I can. At the end of the day, that's between you and God. And that's between me and God. Are, 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 we, are we giving what we can, when we can, with all we can? Now I want to end with this. We will never worship God like this. We will never worship God with what we can, when we can, with all we can. Unless we understand in the depths of our souls that God first gave to us what he could, when he could, with all he could. That God gave himself fully in order to lift us up and to forgive us. We all choose to worship something. We all choose to worship something. Why are we going to worship God? Why are we going to be willing to give a year's worth of salary to him and just pour it all out? Why are we going to be willing to look different than, than the rest of the people we work with? Why are we going to be willing to confess our sins to one another? Why are we going to be willing to sing loudly songs to a God that other people can't, we can't even see? Why are we going to be willing to lay our lives down? Why? We're all choosing to worship something. Why are we going to choose to worship God? Why would Mary choose to do this? She could have done a lot of things. Why would she choose to do this? Because Mary saw the worth and the value of Jesus and concluded that there was no one or no thing as valuable and as worthy of her worship than Jesus. Mary saw Jesus raise her brother from the dead. Mary heard of Jesus teaching to the 5,000. Mary heard the, the teachings in the temple. Mary saw Jesus fight for the justice and righteousness of God. And she concluded, she chose, there's no one and no thing more valuable and worthy than Jesus. And perhaps one of the things that convinced Mary to worship Jesus is that Jesus was always spending time with and making space for the outsider. In this setting, Jesus is in Bethany outside of Jerusalem. Jesus is in the house of Simon the leper, an outsider socially. No one went to Simon's house. No one hung out with him. And Jesus is welcoming Mary, an outsider, to that cultural context. Jesus always has an open seat at his table for anyone and everyone who wishes to sit down with him. Mary was an outsider, and Jesus welcomed her in. We all desire to belong. We all desire to be seen and known and wanted, and Jesus wants and desires us more than anyone else. It's good news that, that Jesus has an open seat for the outsider, because you and I are the outsider. Right? We're not living in first century Israel. I know that's a shocker. Pretty certain most of us, most of us don't have a Jewish heritage. 
We are, by definition, the outsider to Jesus. We weren't born Jewish, and we're living nowhere near him in his presence physically. And yet Jesus has an eye for us. What I think makes him most worthy is that Jesus has a seat at his table for us, for you and for me. Born some 2,000 years later in the United States of America, and Jesus' mind and pursuit was for us. That while we were still sinners, while we were still actively opposing him, that Jesus died for our sins. How many of you pursue someone who's actively opposing you? And that's Jesus' love for us. He pursues us while we're actively sinning against him and he, he dies on the cross for our sins that our, my record of debt could be nailed to him. That the record of debt that I, I, I should give to God, Jesus took and buried in the tomb. And in his resurrection, he offers me eternal life with him. Look, we will never worship God like this until that truth sinks deeply into our souls. We will always have something to move us on to something else until we realize there's nothing more valuable and worthy than him. So it's, it's kind of easy to see what's happening here, but it's the heart of the matter. Do we see the value and worth of Jesus? That he's more valuable and worthy than anything else we could give our attention and allegiance and affection and devotion to. And when we see that, it'll be easy to give what we can when we can with all we can. Because it's worth it. It's not irrational. It's not wasteful. It's the most valuable thing we can worship. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.